You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Thursday, November the 5th, 2020. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ed Harrison, joined shortly by Jay Pulaski of TPWIM. But first, with the news of the day, Haley Drasnan. Well, Ed, you said it best this morning. Everything on my screen is green. Shares, gold, silver, commodities, Bitcoin. Today is the return of the everything rally. We know investors do not like uncertainty, But as we continue to wait for the outcome of the U.S. election, markets have rallied a lot. The S&P 500 is on track to extend its sharpest rally in a week since April, with tech stocks leading this at the vanguard, NASDAQ surging. While treasuries rode the wave yesterday in an odd move defying risk parity, today they hit the brakes with a mild sell-off. Bitcoin we're seeing is soaring, the VIX is down a bit. Investors are appearing to coalesce around the idea of a divided government. Markets have been rallying as Joe Biden and a Republican-led Senate gain swing state votes, what only a few days ago was considered a disaster outcome. History has shown us that since World War II, Stocks had the highest gains when there was a Democratic president and a split Congress. With a divided government, Biden would have difficulty passing legislation aimed at regulating tech companies and also raising corporate taxes. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said Congress will pass a stimulus package by the end of the year. It's looking like it will be around $1 trillion, smaller than the larger package both the Trump administration and Democrats proposed. But the chances of a deal seem to be rising. And with a government, a divided government, it was considered, you know, a doomsday scenario. The race could still change, however, and the economic backdrop remains murky amid the coronavirus pandemic. We're seeing a K-shaped recovery continue to form. This gridlock might be good for markets and investors, but a lot of pain remains for small business owners and the unemployed. It's a pessimistic outlook for jobs when we look at the new initial jobless claim numbers that came out today. They remain stubbornly high. 751,000 jobless claims were filed last week. The jobless claims number was revised the week prior at 758,000. This is on top of data released Wednesday from ADP, which showed companies in the U.S. added fewer jobs in October. It makes it seem that net job growth has downshifted materially. The Labor Department jobs report comes out Friday tomorrow, and it is expected to show more loss in momentum for job growth. Let's note this is all before any impact of a fall-winter COVID wave can be felt in the numbers. The future of the economy depends on these key questions. What happens with the virus and stimulus? How quickly Americans start spending again when it comes to travel, restaurants, and entertainment? And whether the contested election will spark social unrest? On that note, back to you, Ed. Thanks, Haley.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, Jay, uh, you're looking good today, I must say. I gotta, I'll got i have to give you some kudos on uh, a nice uh, red and white outfit. I'm, I'm going with the red, white, and blue, by the way. Okay, well, and I recall from the last time we were together, I think in September, you kind of razzed me a little bit about my lack of color. So I picked this one out specially for you, okay? Excellent. I'm very happy about it. You know, the, the waving the red flag here. So uh, I'm glad you appreciate it. <laughs> well, you know, the last time that we spoke, you said some very prescient things with regard to the fact that uh, you had you've been fairly bullish, but you said uh, you know you want to take some money off the table, um, and that was probably the right call given what we saw at the beginning of September, and then actually again at the end of October. But I want you to sort of tell me how you're thinking about things. Uh, go back to the conversation you had here on uh, the Real Vision Daily Briefing with Ash and then our conversation, and then we can go move forward from there. Well, I think that's a great idea, uh, Ed, because we have had uh, a number of conversations uh, over the last couple of months. I think our uh, conversation with Ash uh, was back in early June, and we had just made a call uh, saying that we were in a new bull market we made that call in our May monthly, and we basically argued that uh, policy support, um, liquidity, uh, and uh, speed of science, hopefully rapid testing in a vaccine, uh, was putting us into a noble market, and investors needed to kind of catch up with COVID speed and discount things appropriately and get ahead of uh, how things were moving. So that was um, in early June with Ash, and then we got together again, um, uh, you and I, uh, in September, early September, so now two months ago. And at that point, uh, we had just written a monthly uh, titled, The Higher You Go, The Tougher It Gets. And we had just hit new all-time highs on the S&P, and we said, hey, look, we're a little extended. The uh, uh, pullback here would be healthy. Uh, a correction should be bought. Uh, for medium to long-term investors, but we've gotten to new all-time highs. We're a little bit ahead of ourselves, and so let's uh, let's be a little careful here. We also, at that time, kind of introduced uh, the big three issues, which we've spent the last couple of months focusing on, right? The first, U.S. elections, the second, U.S. stimulus, and the third, a vaccine. So that has really been, since September, those have been the things that we have really been paying attention to. And then the other thing we did in uh, that conversation, as you may recall, and as we talked about our COVID investing formula, right? Which was that the countries that were able to control the virus had the best opportunity to fully reopen their economies, therefore had the best chance of having a robust, broad stock market advance, and therefore would outperform. And that's where we suggested investors should be. And that obviously centered around Asia. So uh, looking back, I, I just ran the numbers in, in preparation for our conversation today. And over the last three months, Asia has been uh, the best performing region in the world. China, East Asia, as well as Japan. Japan, which no one ever talks about, nobody likes, 
is up 9% over the last three months, outperforming the S&P, outperforming Acqui, outperforming the emerging markets. So that COVID investing formula has really worked well for us and we continue to, to like Asia. So now, today, where, where are we? we? We've been focused, our latest monthly, you always catch me very nicely right after the monthly, so I'm all you know, fizzy with ideas and ready to discuss. So kudos to you and your uh, booking team. But our, the title of our, our monthly was uh, Clarity Cometh, mm. are ready. And basically arguing that we've that time frame to get clarity on those big three issues of election, stimulus, and vaccine was imminent. It is right in front of us. And so last week, our um, our month, our weekly, you, you know we write a weekly musings, uh, the, the title there was peak uncertainty with a question mark because I had just been on Bloomberg um, with uh, John Farrow and his show in the open uh, last Thursday, a week ago today. And so we were just discussing last Wednesday's action, right, where the S&P fell 3%. And I was saying to John, I think that was the point of maximum uncertainty. And you know, you had the European lockdowns, everybody was freaking out about that. European equities were trading back to where they were in May, in the spring. Okay, European financials had been crushed. The US was down 3% on the day. Nobody really knew what was gonna happen with the elections. Stimulus was dead. And so I was making the point then that you wanna be buying into that. We are at that point of maximum uncertainty. And when you're at maximum uncertainty, you know how the business works. You need to be a buyer if you have conviction on a forward view. And we are and have had strong conviction that we're in the new bull market, that we are getting clarity on, on the elections, the stimulus and the vaccine, that those things will stimulate a rotation trade um, out of growth into value, out of the U.S. into the rest of the world, will start a bear market and long duration sovereign debt and is very bullish uh, for commodities. And so the areas that we've been adding to in the last week or so, and I'm giving you kind of the whole spiel and then we can pick it apart, but over the last couple of weeks, we've been adding to two areas. Uh, one, deep cyclicals. It's been very interesting to me that uh, things like airlines, hotels, cruise lines have not have stopped going down relative to the S&P. And we know that when things are flat on bad news, the next step is for them to go up on any kind of good news. And so I just use the airlines because we own uh, jets, uh, the, the airline ETF. As an example, you've had cases in the United States double over the last month yet jets are up. So, I mean, that, that, that tells me that they're not gonna go down. And if you get stimulus and if you get a vaccine, they're gonna trade sharply higher. And the second thing that's gonna trade sharply higher is oil. So the other thing that's really been bombed out is pretty widely hated is crude oil, right? Everyone wants to talk about climate, sustainability, green energy, and we like green energy, we like clean energy, we own some of that as well. But what's really mispriced, so the risk reward here, given that we're a point or two away from all time highs in the S&P again, risk reward, what's really appealing is the stuff that has very little risk and is demonstrating that, like the airlines, like oil, 
and has lots of upside reward if we're correct in our view that 2021 is going to be a global economic boom, a boom year for the global economy. And if that's correct, there's no way that Brent is going to trade at $38, $37 like it was a couple of days ago. It will be trading in the high 50s, the low 60s. So those are the areas of opportunity uh, where we actually have been adding to in the last week or two, uh, things like deep cyclical airlines and oil. Uh, very interesting. And, you know, so I, I want to go into the um, the three parts that you were talking about, uh, the election. Uh, I want to talk to you about uh, stimulus and I want to talk about the vaccine. Uh, maybe we can go in that order because I think that's what's on people's minds in terms of the election. And we talk about clarity or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. uh, it does seem like we have a little bit more clarity now in terms of the election, although I might say the Senate is, is relatively unclear. But it, it seems that the, uh, you know, we're getting more clarity with regard to what's going to happen, except for the court cases uh, with regard to the presidency uh, faster than some people had assumed. Well, how are you looking at the election uh, and and how does that affect your positioning? Well, Ed, you know, uh, one of the old adages in the investment business is it's better to be lucky than smart, right? So uh, my view was that we were going to have a blue wave and uh, markets were going to do very well with that, particularly risk assets and equities, anticipating a large stimulus and bonds were going to sell off uh, aggressively, uh, worried about uh, the same uh, stimulus. And so uh, that obviously has not come to pass, but we were and are fully invested in equities and pretty much max, max overweight equities at this point. And so that's been great, right? We went into this because of what we just touched on, right? The lockdowns in Europe, the lack of stimulus in the United States. We went into the election at the most oversold condition in over 100 years. You have to go back to the election of 1904 to find a similar stage when the market was as oversold going into the election. So the reaction of the last couple of days was predicated and built upon that sell-off that we had in the prior week, like we just talked about. A week ago, the S&P was down 3%. Now today, it's up 3%. All right, so we have a little bit more clarity um, I do think the presidency is going to be called uh, very shortly. Um, one of the important things you touched on, court cases, uh, our view is that because of all the litigation that was done pre-election, there's actually very little to litigate post-election, absent uh, the Pennsylvania situation, which is already in front of the courts, the absentee ballot case, which is already in front of, I believe, the Supreme Court. So if it boils down to Pennsylvania. And if it boils down to absentee ballots in Pennsylvania, then maybe we will have uh, that dreaded scenario of things going all the way to the Supreme Court. Absent that, it's all been litigated about what's an acceptable ballot, how long will the votes go for, how long will they be counted, notwithstanding what the president has said, all that stuff has already been determined. And you've seen that as we've gone through the last couple of days. Vote counting continues. Um, you know, there's, there, it's a steady process. So I think investors have taken comfort from that. And obviously, investors have taken comfort 
from the idea of a Biden presidency and a Republican Senate, which looks like that may be the way we end up, or as, as it, you and I touched on, you know, there's still the potential of runoff races in Georgia that may not really actually settle the Senate until January. So that's that's an open question. But I think it's quite clear that investors are okay with the trade of slightly less stimulus because it's not a blue wave in, in return for less likelihood of big tax increases, which people were worried a Biden administration with the Democratic Senate would uh, would force through. So Quill, let, let me uh, interrupt you there for a second, because I think there are two potential uh, things that people are thinking about that you touched upon. One is uh, what I would call a chaos positioning uh, that's being unwound. Uh, because you know, you talked about the maximum oversold. I mean, that's a discrete outcome. I.e., people were uh, buying uh, out of the money puts and things of that nature. Um, then there's also, and, and you know, they were also buying calls on the VIX and things of that nature as well. Um, and then there's the the whole thing about divided government being positive. Those are two different narratives. And I think that over the coming week, we're going to find out which one has legs, or maybe they both have legs. I mean, when you look look at those two, which one do you feel actually is much more representative of the price action that we're seeing both in stocks and in bonds? I think it's um, the, the latter, the kind of the split government. Because you had, obviously, the bond market, uh, the Treasury market unwound, the blue wave, right? It got, I think the 10-year got as high as 95 bips overnight, and then unwound it all the way back to 75, 76 in the space of uh, one trading day. Um, so I think that clearly it demonstrates the taking out of the blue wave massive stimulus um, position. Uh, I think people have likewise unwound all the chaos positioning as represented by the fact that the S&D is up, you know, 6% since last Wednesday um, in, in a week. So that's a pretty robust uh, performance. So to me, uh, and I think all that's appropriate. Um, I think we, we have gotten through the election. Um, you know, the market has taken very calmly the fact that there isn't a result a day or two days later. I think that's great. There's been a lot of maturity demonstrated, I think, uh, by investors in that front as well as by voters and citizens in general, you know, all the fear of like rioting. I mean, I'm in the middle of Manhattan and last week people were boarding up their buildings, which I thought was just ridiculous. Um, but yet they did it because of all the, of the worries about what had happened in the summer, which even then 90% of the boarding up happened after the right, yeah. of, of uh, looting in New York City. I was here for all of that. So I have a very uh, personal firsthand witness account of that. So to me, markets are uh, have reestablished positioning. Um, they're, we're getting clarity. Clarity allows risk assets to rise. I think it's it, it, it brings pressure onto the bond market, right? Um, the reason why bonds didn't go back and break through uh, the resistance level of 73 basis points, somewhere around 73, 74 basis points, was because of, of the likelihood of stimulus. And once you get a vaccine, uh, well, you know, we go off to the races. I don't want to, we'll talk, we'll get to that, I'm sure. But uh, so for me, I think positioning is now stabilized. Um, markets have taken on board a Biden uh, presidency with a Republican Senate. And even if it turns out that the Democrats have one more senator than the Republicans, it's not gonna be, 
there's not going to be the flexibility of a four seat advantage that people were talking about, uh, you know, the, the day or two prior to the election. So uh, that brings up the stimulus question then, because that's the second part that you're talking about. Um, there are two uh, possibilities. One is a stimulus before uh, January 20th. Uh, the second is after. And Mitch McConnell's uh, said that he has some degree of uh, latitude to reach a deal, but a skinny deal. Um, is there going to be a skinny deal before or after January 20th? The amount of paper that was, you know, amount of trees killed talking about skinny deal, big deal, pre, post, you know, it's just off the charts, right? I mean, to me, it doesn't really matter. Um, and more important is uh, there will be stimulus. It's a question of when, not if, and that's what investors really care about. Um, I think we've had a blessing from the IMF itself saying that uh, fiscal uh, policy is an important, must be an important part, uh, policy part of a global economic recovery. So the orthodoxy of the IMF, which has always been about austerity, uh, is now uh, firmly in the camp of uh, fiscal spending. So fiscal spending in the U.S. is a uh, when, not if question. I, I, by the way, when you say when, I mean, it could be, could it be too late? Could that when come after it's needed? Yeah, I was just about to say that. The, the human uh, component of it, the human suffering, the human need uh, is there and has been there. Um, and so that's, uh, that's an important consideration uh, that we should have a deal. And it would be great if we got a deal in the lame duck uh, session. Uh, that would be both politically uh, wise and policy wise. Whether that happens, I really have no idea. Whether if it comes a month later, uh, that will still be fine for the market. But what it does do, Ed, is it, it flips the positioning of whether we're going to know about a vaccine first or stimulus first, right? And I think that's the that's the subtle point which most folks haven't cottoned on to yet. We're likely to know about a vaccine before we know about a stimulus. And a vaccine is even more powerful for uh, what it will do for portfolios. And I've talked about how the portfolio uh, that led us in the first six to nine months of the year is not the portfolio that will lead us out of the year and into 2021. And that vaccine will be one of those things that, as we say, catalyzes the rotation trade and capsizes the bond bull market. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, you know, uh, with regard to the uh, vaccine, I think uh, you and I, we talked about this uh, just uh, briefly before we got on. I was telling you that uh, uh, there was some alarming news coming out of Denmark about mutation and mink farms and all this nonsense. Um, the question is, is uh, what does that mean, especially with with regard to uh, also people not actually wanting to take the vaccine on uh, to the efficacy of a vaccine? Uh, is this going to be a buy the news type of scenario if uh, a vaccine is, uh, I mean, because the market's supposed to be forward looking. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, we have, I, I guess I'll say two things, start off with two things. 
One, we have been focused on uh, COVID speed. Speed as the signature of the COVID age since uh, February and March, right? The speed of the spread, the speed of the policy response, which was unprecedented, the speed of the market reaction. We went from bear market to bull market, record time, right? The speed of science in terms of the fact that we're talking about having a vaccine in less than nine months from when the, uh, the disease first made its appearance. And, and what we're about to start talking about is speed of delivery, the distribution, which you touched on in terms of people's desire, willingness to take the vaccine. So I think uh, our view is that we will have news on a vaccine before the end of November, right? We heard that from Pfizer, uh, from Moderna. Uh, importantly, uh, both those companies and others who are also in phase three trials, whether it's in China or elsewhere in Europe, uh, also producing their vaccines at the same time as they're going through the test. So Pfizer uh, the other day, for example, said they anticipate having 50 million doses available before the end of 2020 in over a billion doses uh, by the end of 2021. And so I think that importantly, uh, the vaccine is we're likely to have news. It's likely to be positive. One of these different vaccine trials is likely to uh, be successful. Um, the distribution, I think, is going to be better than a lot of people expect, right? If you look at how poorly the U.S. has handled COVID and the, the second wave in Europe, I think there's a lot of skepticism around the ability to produce and distribute a vaccine. And then your question about will people want to take the vaccine? Um, I am a, uh, a bullish on the capacity of the global logistics system to uh, distribute a vaccine. I think that's probably the most well-oiled part of the global economy, and people forget that. And then as far as people taking the vaccine, obviously, that's going to be up to, to individual people. Uh, I'm speaking personally, I, I don't think I'd have any problem uh, taking a vaccine that's been approved by um, the, the scientific uh, community. And so, but your point of, is it a buying, you know, what does it do for assets? I think unequivocally, markets will react aggressively to news of a successful or unsuccessful uh, vaccine trial from the big names like Pfizer and Moderna. If it's- so that's, that's positive for uh, equities, but negative for bonds. Just about to say exactly that. Um, it, it will stimulate risk asset appetite in a major way, and it will be extremely negative uh, for bonds, which, by the way, means very negative for tech. So here the subtle point again is that, as we said um, a couple months ago, rising rates, um, stimulus in a vaccine, which lead to rising interest rates, is kryptonite for technology. It completely destroys the work from home thesis. It means that the pull forward of demand into 2020 means probably disappointing earnings in 2021 and 2022 from the technology sector. And it also means that those rising interest rates will lead to a revaluing in a negative sense of the cash flows of the big tech companies, the big five that make up 25% or so of the S&P. So that itself then helps catalyze the rotation trade um, away from tech and growth 
to uh, cyclicals and value, to financials, industrials, energy. It also uh, suggests that people should allocate away from the United States. Because if, if tech is uh, an underperformer or doesn't act well, the market that's most negatively affected by that obviously is the United States equity market. So that's why you that's why our view rotation trade is both sectoral and geographic. And we want to be positioning into those sector, uh, those cyclical parts of the global uh, stock markets like Europe, like Japan, like parts of the emerging markets uh, and away from the United States. So I think uh, when you start talking about geography, uh, uh, two questions come to mind. One is uh, your asset allocation and how well um, you what your forward looking view is on these different economies. And then the second, which is very much related, uh, has to do with the TPW of your name. Uh, uh, how does that play into this uh, regional deepening thesis that you have in the tripolar world? Uh, those are those are two great questions and, and kind of chunky ones. Um, let's uh, let's talk first kind of about geographic asset allocation, and then we can talk about the tripolar world. Uh, so on the asset allocation side, uh, we have been and remain um, overweight ex-U.S., underweight the U.S. We're overweight uh, non-U.S. developed markets, so Europe and Japan. Within Europe, uh, we like Germany as a play on uh, recovery in China. Uh, we also like the European financials. We think they're uh, very, very attractive. I actually was quoted um, on a, a Bloomberg show about a month ago calling European banks a screaming buy. Um, so we like the banks there. Uh, and in Asia, uh, we, are, um, we are quite constructive based on the view of Asia was first in and first out of, uh, of COVID, right? And so they have almost uh, eradicated uh, amongst amongst East Asia, so uh, South Korea, uh, Taiwan, China, to a lesser extent, Japan, almost eradicated COVID. So, and, and by the way, what about uh, uh, ANZ in that? Because uh, they've they've also done pretty well on that score. Yes, and and they're probably getting interesting as kind of part of the commodity play. But our focus has been primarily on the tech chain. So our technology exposure at this point. Um, is almost completely uh, outside of the United States, with the exception maybe of, of uh, the, some of the semi uh, uh, producers that are listed in the U.S. But for the most part, we want to be playing that tech chain in South Korea, Taiwan, and China, um, and, as well as China more broadly. So uh, that has been uh, first in, first out. Our COVID investing formula about reopening and broader market, that leads us to Asia too. So overweight Asia, overweight Europe, underweight uh, the United States, starting to think about Latin America a little bit, kind of like ANZ uh, to your, your question, commodity plays. If we are right that we're gonna get that 2021 boom um, in economic activity globally, then those commodity plays will do well. And I have noticed that similar to the uh, airline story about not going down on bad news, bottoming and getting ready to go up, Latin America is starting to act in a similar fashion. Uh, so not going down on bad news, uh, starting to stabilize and maybe turning up. So I do think that um, that's kind of the geographic uh, expression in our, our view on rising rates, uh, vaccines, and stimulus being kryptonite for technology, almost by definition, 
with tech being 25% of the US equity market, you have to be underweight if you have if, if you share that view, and we are. So that's kind of the asset allocation. Yeah, and, and what about the TPW side of that? The uh, uh, Where does that go? Well, you know, uh, this is a quick reminder, right? TPW stands for Tripolar World, basically argues that we're in a period of uh, regional integration and regional deepening in each of the three main regions of Asia, Europe, and the Americas. And the two things that are really kind of hitting us now uh, in our tripolar world thinking is one, we're starting to see uh, the outlines of regional currency blocks around the three regions. So uh, Asia, the RENMB, China's currency is starting to act like a regional currency block. It's attracting interest from around the world partly driven by the recovery in China's economic activity, partly driven by the fact that their 10-year uh, government bond yields 3.2%, so has a massive yield pickup over anything else in the developed world, uh, and partly due to the fact that the currency is now appreciating. Uh, it's been one of the strongest performing currencies in the world over the last several months, which by the way, provides a very important umbrella for other parts of the emerging market that can price up to that appreciating RENMB. Remember when the RENMB was depreciating, it was very deflationary for the rest of the world. So an appreciating RENMB is very bullish for, uh, for global growth. So that's the Asian um, regional block. In the Europe by the way, before you get to the other, I mean, uh, that, that, set, that has an inflation component to it, which is negative for treasuries. Yes, exactly. Uh, I mean, I think, I mean, we, we are, I mean, that's a whole, we could have a whole a show on, you know, the regime shifts that are going on, taking place, you know, from monetary to fiscal policy, from deflation to uh, to inflation, from tech to value. I mean, the, the, the number of, of big shifts that are taking place now in the investment world and in the world more broadly um, is, you know, off the charts almost. But yes, um, a strong RMB is, is uh, all other things being equal, is inflationary for the rest of the world, which uh, I think would all like to have some uh, some inflation. So that's the Asian uh, block with the RMB as its regional currency. Um, and you're starting to really see growing interest in the RMB. And by the way, China wants to have a stronger currency because it is trying to drive domestic demand, its whole dual circulation strategy is about bringing up the service and consumption side of the economy and being less dependent on exporting to others, in part because of how you know the trade arguments and fights with the US over the last couple of years. China has taken on board the message that it needs to become more self-reliant. It needs to depend on itself for its own tech stack. We call that SplinterNet. That's again, a whole nother discussion, but a stronger RMB fits with China's broader strategy of dual circulation and stimulating its domestic demand base, brings in imports, wraps the rest of Asia around China, China becomes more important to the rest of the region, supports that idea of a currency block um, centered around the RMB. Over to Europe, Europe uh, with the Euro, notice that you don't hear talk about people leaving the Euro anymore, right? That is definitely yesterday's news. I'm very constructive on Europe. I think Europe has the chance to own the decade of the 2020s. Uh, it is inter 
integrating its joint recovery fund with the Green Deal and has now successfully launched joint, jointly issued debt, which was massively oversubscribed, these uh, green bonds, they massively oversubscribed debt. So I think what you're starting to see in Europe is the beginning of a European safe asset, which has not existed before. And that's what the Bunds have kind of stood in. But you and I know Germany doesn't issue much debt. Right. So always massively mispriced because there's a scarcity uh, element to the Bund, uh, to the Bund uh, uh, sizing. So uh, a jointly issued yield curve uh, that is going to therefore be supported by joint taxation in Europe, probably a digital tax, probably a carbon tax. Um, all these things are starting to happen, kind of bits and pieces. But if you can piece it together, which is one of the things that the tripolar world framework allows us to do, and we think gives us a differentiated view and an, and an edge on thinking about these things, um, you can make out the beginning of a much more robust and much more integrated European Union with the euro being the uh, currency for the European bloc. Now to the Americas, obviously the dollar, that's easy, right? The dollar is gonna be uh, the regional currency, but what's not easy, Ed, and what's kind of uh, unnerving as an American is I'm really struggling to see what is the purpose of the Americas in the tripolar world? Because clearly, as we've discussed, Asia is the consumption uh, center, the, cons the consumption block. Europe is the regulatory uh, climate and tech block. What is the function of the Americas in this world? And I, I use the analogy of playing baseball, right? You go from first to third, that's usually a sign of success in baseball terms, but going from first to third in a global ranking of three regional blocks, that's not bullish, that's not great. So that. That worries me as an American. I don't see the the the, the rationale for the Americas um, in the tripolar world at the moment. It's 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 um, in, unclear to me. Well, you know, uh, I spoke to Peter Atwater earlier today in uh, RV Live, and uh, he said something that uh, had resonance for me. He talked about the K-shaped recovery, which he does. He's the one who came up with it. Uh, certain people going up, certain people going down. And what he said is he said something about uh, people in uh, the the white collar world, uh, the you know, uh, they can actually uh, live remotely with people who are serving them uh from amazon from uh you know m meals that they get uh, uh that are delivered to their home etc and immediately alarm bells went off for me that that's a virtual gated community you know where i live right now it's not a gated community it's out in the open with everything else but essentially what he's talking about is a virtual world that's being set up that is a gated community of sorts that th there's no interaction between the haves and the have-nots in that world. The haves are completely cloistered in their Zoom worlds. We're part of that. Uh, and then the, the have-nots, so to speak, are out there on the front lines doing the things that they need to do to, to earn money. Mm -hmm. That's a Latin American-style uh, democracy. And when you look at the rancor, uh, the, the polarization that we see in the electorate, uh, the, the cries about... Uh, 
disenfranchisement and uh, you know fraud. To me, all that speaks to Latin America. So when you talk about what's the role, how is this happening? The the United States is moving into the Americas in a Latin American style way. Well, that was not the idea. I don't think, uh, and and that may well be. I give I have a lot of respect for Peter. Uh, he and I uh, were members of uh, the World Economic Roundtable uh, for many years together here in New York. So I have a lot of respect for him. He's a very forward thinker. Uh, and that your and your pickup of that is is kind of very interesting to me as well. Um, I spent a lot of time in Latin America earlier in my career, and uh, it's a wonderful part of the world. I'm actually uh, a little more hopeful on two fronts. Um, two fronts. The first is um, looking at China and uh, South Korea and Taiwan today to understand what the future is going. The future, a COVID-free future will look like. And you know what? In China, at least, and in South Korea and Taiwan, it looks an awful lot like China did nine months ago. In other words, um, trading floors are full, uh, maskless, no masks, buffet lunches are on offer, Um, real estate uh, prices continue to do well, Uh, millions and millions and hundreds of millions of people go on vacation and travel, um, and so I'm not sure, uh, and this is why I really worry about the pull forward risk for technology. If next year there's a vaccine and we go back to uh, something that very closely resembles the way life was, uh, let's call it Q4 2019, um, because I think that would be, again, very negative for technology earnings uh, and expectations. So uh, that's one. And then two, the idea of um, the U.S., kind of sliding southward as opposed to South and Central America kind of moving more towards a U.S. model. You know, I mean, it's hard to argue on the political front, really, that clearly the political um, dialogue and nature here in the United States, I think, has deteriorated uh, considerably in the last couple of years. You know, we'll maybe under a Biden administration get to see whether that is also reversible or at least uh, mitigated. I, I think it's quite feasible that it will be. Um, and, uh, you know, I have a view, Joe Biden knows uh, Latin America well. He's in favor of a hemispheric free trade agreement, probably something that could not get done in a split, um, you know, a gridlock uh, government, as we talked about earlier. But, you know, something like a hemispheric free trade agreement, where instead of onshoring production back to the U.S., we nearshore it. So that it's closer to us in in the in the uh, Western Hemisphere, um, and uh, because if it's onshore back to us, the production could come back, but they're not going to be the jobs. It will be done by robots. I think that's on very clear, at least to me. Um, if we nearshore it to uh, South and Central America, to parts of uh, uh, of the region, I think that's much more viable in terms of integrating uh, the hemisphere and providing for a rationale for for the U.S. Because if we were to do that, then you have a uh, a, uh, a populace which uh, doesn't quite get to China levels, but is in the eight to 900 million people uh, range and uh, becomes a much more powerful and coherent economic block. And if we are going to kind of get up and 
get into a dialogue of the European bloc, the Asian bloc, and the Americas bloc, we're going to need to size up, much like the Europeans had to size up after we constructed NAFTA, right? All of a sudden, Germany had 50 million, 60 million people that realize they're not, that they're not a player, um, but they're a player in a Europe of 400 million people in a $17 trillion economy. Uh, and much as we at 330 million uh, people uh, are not really, at least in terms of demographics, a player uh, relative to Southeast Asia with a billion plus people growing more rapidly. So, you know, I, I, I'd like to think that the next couple of years we're going to be talking about a uh, hemispheric free trade agreement for the Americas, uh, which I think could be very, very constructive, not only for the U.S., but for South and Central America as well. Good. Well, you know, I'm going to leave it there uh, today. Uh, Jay, very positive comment. Uh, I'm looking to see uh, uh, people are as bullish as you are in the comments below when we post this at six o'clock. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 usually not. But let me leave with, with one thing, and if we're going to leave it there, you know, I do think that for the next time, let's make sure we talk about 2021, a global economic boom. I think that's an important thing to think about as we approach the end of the year. Um, I was very support. I, I found very helpful the service PMIs in China and the United States, manufacturing, liquidity, stimulus, and a vaccine. Rates go higher, stocks, tech goes lower, rest of the world outperforms. Yeah, and let's do that. Actually, I, I, um, we let's invite you back for a, a, a end of the year summary slash you know forward look is sometime in December. That would be wonderful. Love to okay. do it. Enjoy you and with uh, Real Vision. Thank you, Ed. Good to talk to you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.